The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borey, Part 4, The 1900s, The Cognitive Movement, Part 2. In this podcast, let's look a little more deeply at how cognitive psychology came to be the ascendant form of psychology today. In addition to the input, no pun intended, from the artificial intelligence people, there was the input from a group of scientists in a variety of fields who thought of themselves as structuralists. Now, not structuralists in allying themselves with Wilhelm Wundt, but structuralists in that they were interested in the structure of their various topics. So I'll call them neo-structuralists, just to keep them separate. So for example, there's Claude Levi-Strauss, the famous French anthropologist. But the one that everyone knows about is the linguist Noam Chomsky. Chomsky. Noam Chomsky was born December 7, 1928 in Philadelphia. Chomsky's father was a Hebrew scholar. And young Noam became so good that he was proofreading his father's manuscripts by the time that he was in high school. Noam was also passionate about politics, especially when it concerned the potential for a state of Israel. Noam Chomsky received his B.A. from the University of Pennsylvania in 1949, whereupon he married a fellow linguist, Carol Schatz. They would go on to have three children. Chomsky received his Ph.D. in 1955, also from the University of Penn. That same year, he started teaching at MIT and began his work on generative grammar. Generative grammar was based upon the question, how can we create new sentences which we have never spoken before? How, in other words, do we get so creative, so generative, while considering this question, he familiarized himself with mathematical logic, the psychology of thought, and theories about thinking machines. He found himself, on the other hand, very critical of traditional linguistics and behavioristic psychology. In 1957, behavioral psychologist B.F. Skinner published his book, Verbal Behavior, in this book, Skinner described language as developing through learning principles and the observation of the behavior of others. Children learn to speak from modeling their parents. Now, Skinner focused on the circumstances in which language was learned. So, for example, asking for water was functionally different than labeling something as water or responding to someone who was asking for water. Now keep in mind that B.F. Skinner wanted to explain all behavior using behavioristic or learning terminology without the need for the mind or any innate, internal, or instinctual processes. Now, of course, each of these functions of language, asking for water, labeling, responding would require its own explanation for its development. 
And Chomsky thought that a functionalist explanation, such as the one being offered by Skinner, ignored other important questions, such as the capacity for creatively organizing words into phrases and intelligible sentences. So in his review of Skinner's book, Chomsky savaged the ideas of behaviorism as being capable of explaining the acquisition of language. Chomsky pointed out that children learn language whether they have been reinforced to do so or not. So, for instance, in a culture like America, where children often receive a great deal of one-on-one attention from their parents, those children do not learn language any sooner than a child who grows up in a culture where the child hears stories told around the campfire, hears adults talking around the child, but the child is never directly spoken to. In other words, it doesn't matter how much reinforcement the child gets, children begin speaking when their brains are ready to acquire language. Now, Chomsky also argued that understanding human language requires a genetic linguistic endowment. And this is what he called the language acquisition device. So Chomsky's ideas about the language acquisition device, which was a hardwired capacity to learn language, these had all been laid out in his 1957 book, Syntactic Structures. So besides introducing his generative grammar, Chomsky also introduced the idea of an innate ability to learn language. He said that we have hardwired within us a universal grammar, and that is ready to absorb the details of whatever language is presented to us at an early age. Additionally, Chomsky's book, Syntactic Structures, also spoke about the difference between surface structure and deep structure in language, as well as the rules of transformation that govern the relationships between them. Surface structure is essentially language as we know it. English, German, French, particular languages with particular rules of phonetics and basic grammar. Deep structure, on the other hand, is more abstract. Deep structure exists at the level of meanings and the universal grammar. In the 1960s, Noam Chomsky became one of the most vocal critics of the Vietnam War and wrote the book American Power and the New Mandarins, a critique of government decision-making. Chomsky is still at MIT today. He continues to produce articles and books on linguistics, and books about politics. And if you'd like to see him in person, he recently made a cameo appearance in a YouTube video, which is a parody of Gangnam Style. Chomsky appears around the 447 mark in the video, and the subtitle is Opa Chomsky Style. Another neo-structuralist is Jean Piaget. Originally a biologist, Piaget is now best remembered for his work on the development of cognition. Many would argue that Piaget, more than anyone else, is responsible for the creation of cognitive psychology. 
And if the English-speaking world had only learned to read a little French, this would be true without a doubt. Unfortunately, Piaget's work was only introduced in English after 1950 and only became widely known in the 1960s, just in time to be part of the cognitive movement, but not its creation. Now, it's important to say that others have argued that the work of Noam Chomsky was really the foundation or tilled the soil so that cognitive psychology could develop. But in any case, Jean Piaget was certainly formative in the early years of the cognitive psychology movement. Now, Piaget was born in Switzerland, August 9, 1896. His father was a professor of medieval literature with an interest in local history, and his mother was intelligent and energetic, but Jean found her a little neurotic, an impression that he said led to his interest in psychology, but away from psychopathology. Now, being the oldest child, Jean Piaget was quite independent and took an early interest in nature, especially collecting shells. He published his first paper when he was 10 years old, a one-page account of his sighting of an albino sparrow. Piaget began publishing in earnest in high school on his favorite subject, mollusks. He was particularly pleased to get a part-time job with the director of the Museum of Natural History in his hometown. His work became well-known among European students of mollusks who assumed that he was an adult. All of this early experience with science kept him away, he says, from, quote, the demon of philosophy. Now, later in adolescence, Jean Piaget faced a bit of a crisis of faith. He had been encouraged by his mother to attend religious instruction, but he found religious argument childish. Studying various philosophers and the application of logic, Piaget dedicated himself to finding what he called a biological explanation of knowledge. Ultimately, philosophy failed to assist him in his search, so he turned to psychology. After high school, Jean Piaget went to university. Consistently studying and writing, he became sickly and had to retire to the mountains for one year in order to recuperate. When he returned to school, he decided that he would write down his philosophy. A fundamental point became a centerpiece for his entire life's work. Quote, In all fields of life, organic, mental, social, there exists totalities qualitatively distinct from their parts and the imposing on them of an organization, end quote. So this principle forms the basis of Piaget's structuralist philosophy, as it would later for the Gestaltist, system theorists, and many others. In 1918, Piaget received his doctorate in science from the University of Neuchâtel. He worked for a year at psychology laboratories in Zurich and Bleuler's famous psychiatric clinic. During this period, he was introduced to the works of Freud, Jung, and others. In 1919, he taught psychology and philosophy at the Sorbonne in France, and it was here he met Simon of the Simon Benet fame and did research on intelligence testing. 
He didn't care for the right-wrong style of the intelligence tests and started interviewing his subjects at a boys' school instead using the psychiatric interviewing techniques that he had learned the year before. In other words, he began asking how children reasoned. In 1921, Piaget's first article on the psychology of intelligence was published in the Psychology Journal. That same year, he accepted a new position in Geneva where he began with his students to research the reasoning of elementary school children. This research became his first five books on child psychology. Although he considered this work highly preliminary, he was surprised by the strong positive public reaction to his work. In 1923, he married one of his student co-workers, and in 1925, their first daughter was born. In 1927, their second daughter was born, and in 1931, their only son. They immediately became the focus of intense observation by Piaget and his wife, and this research on their own children became three more books. During the war years, Piaget worked variously at universities in Switzerland, France, Brussels, and even Brazil. In 1952, he returned to France to become a professor at the Sorbonne, and in 1956, he created the School of Sciences at the University of Geneva. He continued working on a general theory of structures and tying his psychological work to biology for many more years. Likewise, he continued his public service through UNESCO as a Swiss delegate. By the end of his career, Jean Piaget had written over 60 books and many hundreds of articles. He died in Geneva, September 16, 1980, one of the most significant psychologists of the 20th century. Jean Piaget began his career as a biologist, but his interest in science and the history of science soon took over his interest in snails and clams. As he delved deeper into the thought processes of doing science, he became interested in the nature of thought itself, especially in the development of thinking. Finding relatively little work done in the area, he had the opportunity to give it a label. He called it genetic epistemology, meaning the study of the development of knowledge. He noted, for example, that even infants have a certain skill in regard to objects in their environment. These skills that Piaget noted in infants were certainly simple. They were sensory motor skills, but they directed the way in which the infant explored his or her environment and how those infants gained more knowledge about the world and more sophisticated exploratory skills. So these skills, Piaget called schemas, or a scheme, a plan. So for example, an infant knows how to grab his favorite rattle and thrust it into his mouth. He's got that schema down pat. When he comes across some other object, say dad's expensive watch, he easily learns to transfer his grab and thrust schema to the new object. Piaget called this assimilation, specifically assimilating a new object into an old schema. Now, when our infant comes across another object, say a beach ball, he will try that old schema of grab and thrust. 
But of course, this works poorly with the new object. So the schema will adapt to the new object. Perhaps in this example, squeeze and drool would be the appropriate title for the new schema. But this process is called accommodation, specifically accommodating an old schema to a new object. Assimilation and accommodation are two sides of adaptation, Piaget's term for what most of us would call learning. Now, Piaget saw adaptation as a good deal more broad than the kind of learning that the behaviorists in the United States were talking about. He saw adaptation as a fundamentally biological process. For example, even the grip of your hand has to accommodate to a stone, while clay is assimilated into our grip. All living things adapt, even if they don't have a nervous system or a brain. Assimilation and accommodation work like pendulum swings at advancing our understanding of the world and our competency within it. According to Piaget, they are directed at a balance between the structure of the mind and the environment, and a certain congruency between the two. That would indicate that you have a good, or at least a good enough, model of the universe. And this is a state that Piaget called equilibrium. As Piaget continued his investigation of children, he noted that there were periods where assimilation dominated, there were periods where accommodation dominated, and periods of relative equilibrium, and that these periods were very similar among all of the children that he had looked at in their nature and in their timing. And so, Piaget developed the idea of stages of cognitive development. And these stages constitute a lasting contribution to psychology. Heb, Miller, Nesser. There are three other psychologists whose names are important to mention in our study of the development of cognitive psychology as a movement. These three are Donald Heb. George Miller, and Ulrich Nesser. Now, there are no doubt others whose names could be added, but I'm sure that no one would leave out these three. Donald Hebb was born in Nova Scotia in 1904. And in 1943, he published his most famous book, The Organization of Behavior, A Neuropsychological Theory. Now, the basics of Hebb's theory can be summarized by three defining terms. The first is the Hebb synapse. Repeated firings of a neuron cause growth or metabolic changes in the synapse that increase the efficiency of that synapse in the future. Now, this is called consolidation theory, and it is the most accepted explanation for neural learning today. Second, there's the Hebb cell assembly. These are groups of neurons so interconnected that once activity begins, it persists well after the original stimulus is gone. And today, people call these neural nets. And third is the phase sequence. Thinking is what happens when complex sequences of these cell assemblies are activated. 
Donald Hebb humbly suggested that his theory is just a new version of connectionism, a neo-connectionism or neuro-connectionism. But this connectionism is today the basic idea behind most models of neurological functioning. And it should be noted that Donald Hebb was the president of both the APA and its Canadian cousin, the CPA. Now, the second highly formative figure in the development of cognitive psychology is George Miller. Miller was born in 1920, and in 1946, he received his Ph.D. from Harvard and began to study psycholinguistics. He published his most famous paper in 1956, The Magical Number 7, Plus or Minus 2, Some Limits on Our Capacity for Processing Information. In this paper, he argued that short-term memory could only hold about seven pieces, called chunks, of information. Seven words, seven numbers, seven faces, whatever. And this is still accepted as accurate. In 1960, Miller founded the Center for Cognitive Studies at Harvard with famous cognitivist developmentalist Jerome Bruner. Miller had already written extensively about his conception of cognitive psychology. In fact, he argued that the behaviorist tradition was insufficient for the task of explaining language. Together with Bruner, they used the computer as their model of human learning and used such analogies as information processing, encoding, and retrieval. Miller went so far as to define psychology as the study of the mind. Psychology had previously been known, according to the behaviorist redefinition, as the scientific study of behavior. Most modern textbooks now define psychology as the scientific study of behavior and mental processes. George Miller served as the president of the APA in 1969 and received the prestigious National Medal of Science in 1991. Thereafter, he served as Professor Emeritus at Princeton University, and he passed away on July 22, 2012. The third formative figure in cognitive psychology is Ulrich Nesser. Nesser was born in 1928 in Germany and moved with his family to the United States at the age of three. He studied at Harvard as a physics major before switching to psychology. While at Harvard, he was influenced by Kafka's work and by George Miller. In 1950, he received his bachelor's degree, and in 1956, his Ph.D. At this point, he was a behaviorist, which basically everyone was at the time. Nesser's first teaching position was at Brandeis, where Maslow was department head. Here, he was encouraged to pursue his interest in cognition— and in 1967, he wrote the book that was to mark the official beginning of the cognitive movement, Cognitive Psychology. Later, in 1976, he wrote Cognition and Reality, in which he began to express a dissatisfaction with the linear programming model of cognitive psychology at the time, and the excessive reliance on laboratory work rather than real-life situations. In fact, he eventually became a vocal critic of cognitive psychology and moved toward environmental psychology. He served for most of his career at Cornell University, where his research interests included memory, intelligence, the social significance of IQ tests, and self-concepts. 
Nesser also served on a task force that reviewed the book The Bell Curve and contributed to a consensus report, Intelligence, Knowns, and Unknowns. That report is easily available on the web, and I would encourage you to Google that title and read more about it. Ulrich Nesser died on February 17, 2012, from complications of Parkinson's disease. So what can we conclude about the future of cognitive psychology? Well, as I said previously, it is impossible to tell whether cognitive psychology will prove to be the psychology of the future. In fact, even as I pointed out with Ulrich Nesser, even some of its major proponents have their doubts. Cognitive psychology is far more sophisticated, philosophically, than behaviorism. And yet it lacks in sophistication when compared, for example, to phenomenology and existentialism. It does, of course, have the tremendous advantage of being tied to the most rapidly developing technology that we have ever seen, the computer, and now the Internet. But few people really see the computer as ultimately being a good model for human beings, and in some ways not even as good as the old white rat, which, even though it could not talk, at least was alive.